Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we welcome back one of our favorite guests and friends, Professor Joseph Ellis, and he and Clay Jenkinson have a far-ranging conversation regarding the future of America and the current state of affairs in America. I'm always delighted to have conversations with you and the great Joseph Ellis, the author of a number of award-winning books, including His Excellency on George Washington, American Sphinx about Thomas Jefferson, and Passionate Sage about John Adams of Massachusetts. But what we really wound up discussing was how much weight to give the race problem and the slavery problem in understanding Thomas Jefferson in this century. At the end of the program, the two of you share thoughts about the future of America the next decade. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, one of your more famous statements is that the earth belongs to the living. In that regard, sir, you at one point talked to Mr. Madison about your feelings that every generation, the American Constitution should be rewritten. I don't think Mr. Madison appreciated that suggestion, did he? I was observing the French Revolution and realizing how much previous generations had uh, impaired the capacity of the Frenchmen of my time to pursue happiness. They were loaded with debts. There were all sorts of medieval and feudal institutions that prevented people from any you know, moderate measure of freedom of action, freedom of movement, freedom of how they earned enough money to put food on the table and so on. And so it seemed to me that the dead hand of the past really gets in the way of the pursuit of happiness. And I also knew that from a kind of a uh, anthropological point of view that the earth belongs to the people who are actually living on it, not to people who lived 200 or 400 or 700 years ago. And so I wrote a letter to Mr. Madison from France saying the earth belongs to the living generation. And, and if that's so, then we should find ways to enable the rising generation to reconfigure our system and maybe even repudiate the national debt if it goes on beyond the term of a generation. And so I said in, in this now famous letter that there can be no perpetual constitution, there can be no perpetual set of laws, there can be no perpetual national debt. And if we want to look at this proactively, we should tear up the Constitution of the United States once every 19 or 20 years and rewrite it so that it meets our own needs in the living generation, not as a fossil from the past. Well, sir, I, I must agree with you in principle, but when we think about the actual mechanics of this, as if I were to take Mr. Madison's position, that poor gentleman had just been through agony in working out the mechanics of our current constitution. And you were saying, well, fine, but we're going to get rid of it in the next generation. <laughs> it had to be very difficult for Mr. Madison to hear that. Well, I understand. And he, and he wrote a very remarkable reply in which he convinced me that although I was probably right in theory, in practice, this could be quite destabilizing and even dangerous. I never really stopped thinking that, that my approach was the right one, but I do understand what he went through 
preparing for the Philadelphia Convention and then being there and being one of the most important people there, perhaps the most important person outside of George Washington, and, and beyond that, taking notes of every speech by every person there. Uh, Mr. Madison produced what amounts to a, a verbatim uh, transcript of all of the deliberations in Philadelphia. He said later that that was one of the hardest tasks of his entire life. And so he was there and I was not. I was in France. He was in Philadelphia. Uh, I'm a theorist and he's a pragmatist. Um, I understand his point of view, but I still believe uh, that it's important for us to keep this principle in mind that the earth belongs to the living and not to the dead. Well, finally, Mr. Jefferson, uh, many Americans, uh, particularly some politicians, regard the Constitution almost as sacred texts that uh, can, cannot be altered or changed. I, I'm afraid that that way, well, there's, there's a lot of problematic issues if one has that viewpoint. Well, I think some men do look on the Constitution with a kind of sanctimonious reverence and um, deem it like the Ark of the Covenant too sacred to be touched, and they ascribe to the men of the preceding age a wisdom more than human. I understand that, but it's a mistake. A constitution is really just a, uh, an arrangement document, a recipe for government, a way of articulating human ideals, and I think every generation has the capacity to do that as well as its predecessors, and maybe better. I trust the people, and I believe that we progress and that other generations, future generations, will do a better job than mine did at formulating the best possible ideals and practices for the American people. Very good, Mr. Jefferson. I thank you, sir. You are most welcome, citizen. citizens and welcome to this week's show. I'm your host David Swenson joined by the creator of this show Mr. Clay Jenkinson and we are so pleased to welcome Mr. Joe Ellis back for a conversation. Joe good to talk with you. Pleased to be back. It's always fun to talk to you. I, I, I kind of wanted to start just by asking you it's been a while since we've talked I wanted to ask you what you're working on now. Uh, it's controversial. I, I did a book that came out a year or so ago. It, it did reasonably well. It's called uh, The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontent. It's just coming out in paperback now. And uh, some people thought was that was my culminating work in the American founding. You know, that made it sound like I was going to die, you know. And um, <laughs> so I had to do something next. And I'm working on a book that's tentatively entitled Realities and Regrets, the Tragic Side of the American Founding, which is a book about why the founders failed to end slavery or put it on the road to extinction and why they failed to reach a just accommodation with the Native Americans. So it's destined to put me in the sights of people from both sides of the political spectrum. 
and my friends tell me I shouldn't do it, which is all the more reason why, of course, I'm going to do it. You've also had a number of um, uh, articles published in the L.A. Times, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. They usually take what I send them, so I always keep sending them stuff. And uh, I did one that was relevant to the Jefferson Hour in the sense that uh, I, I developed the conceit that I was in a conversation with the founders, and they were telling me what they think is wrong with America. And um, with uh, Jefferson, he told me that he was disappointed that most people didn't uh, voluntarily wear masks during the pandemic because he thought that they should internalize the interests and needs of the collective. That was, and, and that Madison said he was stunned that we hadn't done away with the Electoral College yet. So that kind of thing. But um, I try to connect the past and the present when I can, though in the end, I'm a card-carrying historian who thinks my highest priority is to recover their world with as much of integrity uh, as I can. Welcome, our dear friend Joe Ellis, um, our returning champion, uh, historian, and humanist from um, both Massachusetts and an undisclosed location in Vermont. We've missed you here at the Jefferson Hour, and I have a question for you, and it kind of um, relates to the problem of the unresolved race and slavery issues of the founding generation. And I think Mm -hmm. we agree that the founders uh, kicked the can down the road until it could be kicked no farther uh, in 1860, and this led to the this ca- catastrophe of more than right. uh, 700,000 Americans killed, and mm-hmm. without without finally resolving the question fully anyway, and the question is still not resolved fully anyway. Jefferson's question, which is, can we live in a biracial republic successfully? And right. so, here's right. my question for you: You know, Jefferson has become in many respects, the poster child of all of this because he's uh, the easiest hypocrite to uh, fixate on because he's the one who said all men are created equal and all of that. So here's my question. How much weight should we give this? I mean, at the moment, it's the the burden of Jefferson's um, racism and his, um, his, his growing complacency in his life about slavery is damaging him so severely that he's in real trouble and statues are coming down and schools are renaming themselves. And there's even talk of demolishing the, the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, DC. How much weight should we give this? I come at it from the following. Well, I begin with the assumption, quite the opposite. If you want to understand the history of American slavery and racism, Jefferson is the person more than anybody else you've got to understand. He's the kind of the Mona Lisa of American history. And we can be looking at that and seeing different things. He simultaneously wrote the most important words in American history. The basis for the civil rights movement and for the emergence of of a multiracial American society, which is what we are demographically. Um, On the other hand, Um, He really believed that blacks and whites could not live together. And part of his reason for thinking that was that if freed, African-Americans would be discriminated against for the rest of time. They would never be allowed to become equal citizens. But another reason was that he says this, that he believed that if the races intermixed, the result would be an inferior race 
the Anglo-Saxon race needed to meet pure. This is where he's really vulnerable to the hypocrisy argument, because in fact, Monticello was a laboratory for racial mixing and he himself was directly involved in it. But that my bottom line on the question you're asking is that instead of um, knocking down the Jefferson Memorial, we need to put some additional tablets in there that show the other side of Jefferson, that is the racist side. We and, and I'm you know I don't believe in destroying these things because it's not going to change history and we need to know what we're up against. Nobody to my knowledge has argued we should take his face off Mount Rushmore, but I just think that instead of attempting to erase the racist side of our of our nation, that we need to be aware of it. And if you're going to fight it, that the only way you can fight it is if you know what it is. Um, most Jeffersonians think that democracy is the clearest statement of of the enlightened ideal. But if you look at the early American history and even up till now in our world, if you try to solve the race problem, democracy is a problem. Because in the late 18th century, 80 to 90 percent of the white populace could not imagine a biracial society. It's one of the reasons it's going to be hard to end slavery. In the North, you can end it by also imposing segregation, which is what they did. In the South, you could only end it, they thought, and Jefferson thought, by sending the African-Americans somewhere else. Anyway, I'm an optimist in the sense when I look at the world around me, it is a multiracial world. I'd be, I'd be, I really would love to be able to dial up Jefferson now and say, well, what do you really think now? Look at who we are. Uh, look at the, look at the athletic world, the entertainment world, the acting world. We're great because of our multiracial character. And um, I wonder what he'd say now. Of course, we don't know. It's, it's impossible to know whether Jefferson would have uh, remained on the enlightened side of most questions and would have grown with the increasing tolerance and multiculturalism of the American experiment, or whether he would have continued to harden into something like a garden variety Southern bigot as he was beginning to be at the end of his long and distinguished life. So a couple of things, Joe. One is that I want to ask the question in a different way, but first I want to um, to, to note for David that you're you're the man of metaphor for Jefferson. You wrote a book calling him the American Sphinx. Now you're calling him the Mona Lisa. What's next, Guernica? <laughs> um, I don't know. I guess as a writer, sometimes I think I'm trying to make things more interesting with metaphors that might catch a reader's attention. Um, I, I can't come up with one to express the idea that you generated in my, my head just now with your question. Because the truth is, if you really ask, if you should, and if we could finesse it all and communicate with them, what he'd say is, it's none of my business. You're on your own. That every generation is sovereign. I mean, that was a radical idea. And Madison had a heart attack when he told them this in 1789. But he really did believe that the future would produce changes, changes in, de in democracy, changes in psychology. He's pre-Darwinian, he's pre-Mendel, he's pre-Einstein, he's pre-internet. Um, and um, I'd love to ask him what he thinks about the internet, because as I listen to the internet, if I begin with an assumption that the people is a good 
good, really interesting, wonderful group. I'm not sure I can keep that that idea intact because there's a the sounds I'm hearing out there are ugly, nasty, um, and uh, it makes me think that, that Hamilton was right when he said I don't know who was asking him, Martin Jefferson. And they said, what do you think of the people? And Hamilton said, the people, sir, the people is a great beast. And a significant portion of the American people now fit that description. So so I want to follow up here. Um, I love your metaphors, by the way. Uh, I, I combated your metaphor of the American Sphinx. I said, no, that's not true. He's not, he's not unknowable. You were kind of following in Merrill Peterson's footsteps when he said after 20 years of working on Jefferson, he found him basically unknowable and impenetrable. But I he was just talking with... about the 1790s, by the way. He wasn't talking about the whole thing. And I, the, the title referred to the way in which Jefferson's image is infinitely interpretable. It didn't mean that Jefferson himself didn't know what he believed and didn't have a core set of convictions that were pretty clear. And, uh, and I say that in the preface of that book. But the question you're raising is often get ready. Well, what do you mean by Sphinx? And um, it, it, there is a core of Jefferson convictions um, that um, are quite you know, solid. And, and, and some of them, I mean, where you and I will sometimes part company is the core of the Jefferson value system was based on the existence of an agricultural society. And when we switch in the late 19th and early 20th century from an agricultural to an industrial, from a rural to an urban society, Jefferson himself said, when that change happens, everything I believe is irrelevant. I'm glad I won't have to live to see it. All right. So um, let, let me let me return to my larger, my opening question. But I want to, I wanted to start by saying if I could talk to Jefferson, I, I would probably channel my inner John Adams and say, uh, what about what about the Holocaust? You know, what about Auschwitz? What about Hiroshima and Nagasaki? What about Abu Ghraib, Mr. Jefferson? What about Guantanamo? What about Mi Lai? Do you still believe in the goodness of man? And of course he would. Joe, we need to take a short break. But when we come back, I want to ask my question about how much weight to give race and slavery and Jefferson in a, in a different way. You talked about the monuments and, and statues and, so, and public memorials and so on. I want to ask you about when we assess Jefferson's character, his achievement, his place in the history of human liberty, how much weight should we give to this problem and not let it overwhelm Jefferson, or does it simply overwhelm Jefferson? So we'll hold that for the other side of our break. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We're talking with our dear friend, Joseph Ellis of Massachusetts and Vermont. We'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week, we're speaking with our dear friend, Professor Joseph Ellis. And when we took our break, Clay, you had a question for Joe. Would you like to restate that? Joe knows the question, and I'm sure he's been thinking about it during the break. But Joe, you know, it's one thing to say we should keep these monuments because they allow us to have education moments and that uh, we can use these to... Uh, you know, study American history in all of its fullness, including the things that are not particularly um, admirable in our history. I get all that. That's a that's an argument that can be made, um, and I mostly agree with that myself, with some exceptions. But but my question is more about Jefferson's overall place and achievement, and how we think about him. Because when, as you know, when you wrote American Sphinx a generation ago. Um, Jefferson was still riding pretty high in American memory. Now Jefferson is at the nadir, I think, of his historical memory. So what happens next? I mean, is he permanently diminished by this, or does the pendulum move in a different direction? I guess I'd switch from the pendulum to the metaphor of the window. As historians, we're looking through a window into the past, and the window has multiple panes. And slavery and race is one of the pains, and it's one of the pains at the center of the window. And so it can't be ignored, but it's it can't become all important. Jefferson was a great thinker. Jefferson was an architect. Jefferson was great with, with wine. Jefferson was an elegant stylist. Jefferson articulated more clearly than anybody else the promise of American history. That's all true. But I think that what happened to Jefferson's image and that you're reflecting started in the mid-60s with the Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Act. And then the reaction to that, that any assessment of Jefferson that does not include the race and slavery issue is obviously inadequate. On the other hand, any assessment of Jefferson that makes that the only pain through which we're looking is also inadequate. And I think, in some ways, the truth is complicated. We have to be capable of irony and paradox, and um, that that is a view of American history which is difficult to teach. And I think that the longstanding tradition when, you, when kids are in grade school and middle school, you teach them the mythology, and when they get to college, you tell them the truth. Um, I think that um, there are many years where textbooks were published in such a way that there was a Southern edition that took about talked the Civil War as a war between the states and the Northern edition that called it the Civil War, so that both could be accepted. Anyway, but my point here is that an either-or answer to Jefferson is not appropriately Jeffersonian. Jeffersonian is all, needs to compass all knowledge. It's like discovering that your father had affairs when you were a young kid, and you got to learn to live with that. And in me, I, you know, I don't think we should be tearing down the Jefferson Memorial. I think we should keep it and uh, with some changes. We have to live with our past. I think that presentism is, is the original sin of American history, historians. If you bring a contemporary definition of racial equality to the, to the historical 
to the historical period you're looking at, you falsify it. And if you really, if that's true, as I say, 90% of the white population in the 18th century could not imagine a multiracial or much less a biracial society. It's, I, it sounds like a, an answer that attempts to evade a, a direct conclusion. And it's because I'm saying any conclusion that excludes the other portions of Jefferson's personality and of the American past is itself inadequate. But we allowed ourselves for a long time to understand that Jefferson was a slaveholder and even to be able to enumerate some of the numbers and to talk about some of the families and some of his actions and so on. But as a culture, until at least the 1970s, we effectively gave Jefferson a pass on this question. And now it does change it permanently changes a certain view you have. And that's, I think, where we are. We are that. But what you're calling attention to inadvertently, Clay, is that the, the um, as a nation, the United States did not commit itself to a biracial ideal until the middle of the 20th century. Or even later. Even later. But I'm saying that starts with Truman's... Uh, decision to integrate the army, then it's Brown versus Board of Education, then it's the Civil Rights Act of 65 and or the Voting Rights Act of 65 and 64. Those are the big changes. And that's a, you know, that's a fundamental shift. And, um, and as I think we've seen in the last uh, five to six years, there's a significant portion of the white population who believes that make America great again, again means moving back past those moments, moving back to a past in which we do not accept and endorse the idea of a biracial society. Um, and that was, that's the big change. And by the way, and I would be interested in, in if listeners can come up with a, an alternative answer, but I don't think there's any society in the world it is more of a multiracial society than the United States. As I'm sure you know, your fellow historians at elite colleges would not only dismiss that argument, but but sneer at it. Their view is that's a that's that's they'd say that's Joe Ellis's last plateau of trying to protect this country from the truth. You know that this is how they're talking, and you reject that. I'm sure. Yeah, I say bring it on, baby. I think, I, unfortunately, I'm a better historian than you are. And in fact, that you are a presentist, you're not a historian. I think the other person who is in agreement with me in this basic vision of how we have to understand race and slavery is Ken Burns. And I think Ken Burns has done more to influence American people in terms of understanding American history than any other single person. And then Ken Burns is not a card-carrying historian, as he will tell you. Listening to you, Joe, uh, two descriptive terms about Jefferson, the American Sphinx, and you also referred to him as the the Mona Lisa. And what, what I'm hearing you say is that we need Jefferson if we're ever going to understand the race issue in, in America. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with a tribal elder, Dan Jerome, he was talking about uh, Native American youth, and he said, if they don't know where they came from, how can they know where they're going? 
Does that sum up what you're thinking? Yes, thank you. It's that a grappling with the American past should be a process that allows you to come to terms and build up a reservoir of information about where we are, where we've been, um, and that Jefferson is a central figure in trying to build up that reservoir of knowledge. And there's a dark side and there's a bright side here. And it's time to stop, to put away childish things. It's, stop, it's time to stop making American history into a series of left-wing or right-wing cartoons. Um, Jefferson's not a cartoon. And um, at any rate, um, and the founders as a group are the greatest collection of political leaders we've had in American history, period. They are the gold standard against which our current very, very, uh, what shall we call it? Um, Contentious. Uh, well, uh, depressed. I mean, this, I mean, the Congress of the United States doesn't work. And, um, and, but the, the real question then becomes, why is it that the greatest generation of political leaders in American history could not solve the race problem or the Native American problem? Yeah, but listening to the two of you talk over these many conversations, uh, both of you have had your pessimistic views and both of you have had your optimistic views. Uh, we're recording this on the last day of November 2022. November was a busy month, um, the holidays, of course, but also the elections. And so I, thinking about the two of you and your optimistic and pessimistic views, I, I'd really be interested to hear the two of you talk about your thoughts on the recent election, what it means. Let me start because I'll be brief and then Joe can um, knock the ball out of the park as always. Um, I think the American people got close to the edge of the abyss and took a good look at it and decided to back away towards more of what John McCain called regular order. And I don't think the crisis is over yet, but I think that the American people spoke pretty clearly in saying that the craziest stuff is just not helpful. It doesn't get us anywhere. It's just punitive and nihilistic and confusing and degrading to the very idea of America. And of course, there's still a lot of that out there, and I don't think it's going away, and we may see a resurgence of it if President, former President Trump is indicted uh, or if he stands for the presidency again in a, in a, in a serious way. But I think that um, good, something good happened that, that made me feel like a Jeffersonian, Joe. I felt like a Jeffersonian because I believe Jefferson said the people may not be well-educated and they may not be um, uh, politically insightful, but they have common sense. They have really important common sense and so they, in the end, usually wind up doing pretty much the right thing. And I think that's what's happened here, frankly. Hmm. And what about you, Joe, looking at it from perhaps a Jeffersonian perspective and maybe uh, the realism of, of Mr. Adams, how, how do you react to, to Clay's answer? Okay, that's a good answer. It's one that I can embrace and agree with. Um, I had to it. I, let me think that I think we dodged a bullet. Um, I think we were reminded that, you know, both 
Benjamin Franklin and Abraham Lincoln both said it. You know, what, what did Franklin say? I've given you a republic if you can keep it. Or as Lincoln put it, whether any any uh, republic so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. And both both Franklin and Lincoln, both great men, um, to be sure, uh, were reminding us that what we created was it was it was a new creation, a nation-sized republic. It never existed, and uh, that it was presumed to be fragile. And here, 230 some years later, it still exists, and you take it for granted. And, um, and I do think we we took a shot across the bow here, and maybe it's still going across the bow as I speak. But that um, it, we call it democracy. It's really a republic, a, a rule of law society and that um I, there is a significant portion of the american populace um that is willing to do away with it i think the underlying reason they want to do away with it is to go back to a world that, that we talked about earlier which is uh, a world in which um racial equality gender equality um Sexual equality is, uh, is is non-existent, and um, and I think that that the arrow is still in the air on that one. If I can switch metaphors, but um, but we did dodge a bullet, and uh, and if you uh, what for me during the past year that we're looking back at now, if you want, if you say there's a there's a global argument going on about the values of a democratic ideal versus the stronger kind of government in a in a authoritarian and at times dictatorial or totalitarian society and that that's the big argument we know where jefferson stands on that and um what's given me great uplift is ukraine ukraine's this small little country that now if you're looking for the epicenter of the democratic ideal that's where it is and the degree in which they have successfully turned back the Russian invasion is was unprecedented. I mean, nobody predicted that. And um, and every time I see them on television suffering and enduring and winning, I'm uplifted. Um, uh, I mean, we like to think of ourselves as the city on a hill right now for democracy. I think it's Ukraine. So, Joe Ellis, you've just said a pretty bold and startling thing that the city on the hill has um, jumped from Massachusetts and the United mm -hmm. States to Ukraine. It's a very strong statement. Remember, Angela Merkel said during the last administration, we Europeans have to realize we're, we're, we're basically on our own now. We're going to have to carry the mantle of uh, a liberal Western a democratic or social democratic culture forward because we're not seeing our old friend America really representing it in its full sense. Those are those are hard things to hear, Joe. Well, I, by, by saying like, we're the country that initiated the union among the NATO countries and stand behind it and, uh, and provide the support for Ukraine that is allowing for them to succeed in this fight against uh, the Russian tyranny. And um, so uh, I, what I'm saying is that 
But now Ukraine seems to understand and be willing to commit itself to that goal more than more than we are. And um, uh, and but that they're a model for us. Um, we we will always be because of our size, because of our economy, because of our military power, the the uh, the largest city uh, on a hill. And um, but it's I think instead of you know feeling jealous at all about Ukraine, just say God. God bless you, and thank you for helping us to understand what the values we claim to believe in really look like when they're challenged. And these people are doing it in a way that is just incredible. So why is there a Zelensky who has intuited or who represents this, who comes out of a very interesting and unpredictable background, and we're not seeing young, vibrant, articulate, humorous, passionate uh, leaders in this country to renew our American republic. Uh, well, I mean, I think the way I put it is it, because right now there are plenty of people who have the potential to become that kind of leader, but the political system that we have and the election system we have and the the role of money in elections, et cetera, et cetera. None of the none of the first presidents of the United States, from Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, John Quincy Adams, would run for political office at the presidential level. Now, it would be they'd consider an act of prostitution. And um, so, I think the structure of our election system and the and the existent Congress of the United States, where you're there. And their highest priority is to be reelected. Um, uh, remember that it's not the people; it's the public in the republic. The term republic, republic. It's your highest goal should be to act and debate on the basis of the public interest, even when it might mean you lose the next election. That's okay. And um, and in Ukraine, it's still possible to have such people. It's a smaller country, and they've been. To, the greater the crisis, the greater the likelihood you'll produce those leaders. Um, that's that's the rule of law. If, if we were invaded, we I think you'd see some of these people come to the fore. So, Joe, you just described Liz Cheney, which is a pretty interesting irony. Um, ah. David, I think we need to take a break. Oh, uh, thank you for the reminder. I've been caught up in the conversation. But, yes, we do need to take a short break. When we come back... I'd like to pose a question to the both of you. Uh, I know you're historians, but I'd like you to project into the future and perhaps tell us what you think the next 10 years will bring. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. And we again are speaking with the creator of the Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and our special guest and, and good friend, I think I can say, Mr. Joe Ellison. Uh, it's been fascinating to listen to the two of you this week. And as I alluded to before the break, I would like you to take your skills as historians and sort of project them in, into the future. What do you see happening in America in the next decade? I'll begin by saying that historians are really great at predicting the past. We're almost omniscient. We can tell you who's going to win the Civil War and how Vietnam's going to turn out, etc. Um, and we're not that much better than ordinary Americans or anybody else at predicting the future. What we look for, however, is patterns. And, um, and I've got two observations here. Over the next 15 to 20 years, somewhere around 2040, the white population will become a statistical minority. Every time there's a movement forward on the racial front, on what King called the arc of the moral universe, there's a backlash in American history that's patterned. We're living through a backlash now. And I expect that backlash to worsen. So I'm worried about that. The second thing is the question that they're, they're going to ask us 30, 40 years from now is going to be, what were you thinking? As the planet gets heat hot, hotter, New Orleans is underwater, and um, they're going to ask us why we spent this, this period of time not putting a tax on carbon and significantly reducing the number of the carbon that we're throwing into the atmosphere. That over the over the next few decades is going to become the lead. Whenever they talk about breaking news, the beginning of a newscast is going to be about the weather. And uh, that's what we're leaving to our grandchildren. And that troubles the hell out of me. Well, Joe, I agree with what you say, and particularly your opening statement that historians have no capacity to predict the future and are usually shown to be completely erroneous when they when they attempt to do it um, because the past is something we can try to know. The future is something that we can't. I mean, who could have anticipated in 1980 that the Internet would be a digital revolution as potent as the, as the Gutenberg revolution of the 15th century? And things just can't be predicted, and technology and human creativity are so well-funded and moving at such an enormous pace now that I don't think that we can begin to really know where things are headed. Human nature may stay the same, but the ways in which food is distributed and created, the, the ways in which nations deal with each other, uh, our transportation systems, our educational systems, they're in more flux than I think at any time in the history that I know of. And I think that that's a key to this, that when a culture is changing so fast, it's so, so many things are happening. You know, 15 years ago, people couldn't have anticipated that there would be gay marriage, uh, that uh, gay people would, would have prominent positions in politics and in the, in the church and in, in, in the economy and so on. Uh, just things are just completely moving. And, and the people who are stuck in Pat Buchanan's world have been getting more and more and more and more bewildered and frustrated. And so they're asserting themselves in a really strong and often ugly way now and saying, stop, make it stop. Too much change, too fast. And I think that there's a certain 
human legitimacy to, I'm sorry that they express it and respond in the way that they do and react in the way that they do, but I understand their, some of what their anxiety and fears are. And so we need time to absorb these changes. And I think if, if, if we could just slow down just a little and absorb some of these massive social changes that have occurred since the 1960s, we might be able to kind of take a deep breath and regroup and move forward. But whatever we do, I think this is universally true. The mass of young people are interested in things that are not on the agenda of right-wing, alt-right, um, Tea Party sorts. That's all ridiculous stuff in the rearview mirror for the great majority of young people. And what they're going to demand is two things, I think. And boy, are these going to be hard. One of them is what you say, that we address the global climate crisis in a very, very, very meaningful way. And we haven't done that yet. And the second thing they're going to ask for is some much greater commitment to distributive justice, that it's not okay for a handful of people to own the world and for there to be a kind of shrinking middle class and then a growing and ever larger people who are in the underclass or who are barely able to make it even in the richest country on earth. And I think those two things are coming. I don't think that you and I are going to be part of it. I think we, we may be old enough to look back at it and, and, and cheer it on, but I think it's going to be driven by people under the age of 40 uh, who's, uh, who have not yet emerged as national leaders but will emerge as national leaders and the gerontocracy that uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden represent, and frankly, the three of us in this conversation also represent, will have to yield, and I hope we do. Sounds good to me. Um, I think that uh, I'm ready to yield, but I'm, um, uh, I do think you're right about, and I think to some extent the most recent which polls in the, on the election that just occurred, the, the, the big group that entered that, the, the voting booth that made a big difference was young people who voted, many of them voting for the, the voting uh, numbers for most people under 30 is usually very low. The, the people that vote the most are the old people like us. And that's changing. And they're, they're coming. Maybe they're coming. Um, and women are coming. You better get used to it. I taught for 40 years at a women's college. Let me tell you, a lot of colleges have to do affirmative action just to get an equal number of, uh, of men. A lot of men don't get, don't get in because they get in because they have to let them in. Um, all that's by way of saying that I agree. No issue in no civil rights issue in my lifetime has moved as quickly as the gay issue. Um, and the Congress is about ready to pass a bill uh, sanctioning gay marriage in order to prevent the Supreme Court from overturning. Um, I think things are moving very much in that direction. Um, but in the end, I embrace ignorance and uh, the way that you say all historians should and and I must. Um, we don't know, um, but um, uh, that that we know, you know. The one thing you and I are both completely clear about is the existential threat is uh, to the planet is the defining crisis of the next thirty to forty years. Um, and uh, my son, my eldest son, works for the Nature Conservancy as his chair of the Climate Change Task Force. So he hits me with a lot of information. 
there's a group of physicists, I think some of them are at the Nature Conservancy, that come up with a theory that I think is intriguing. We've been sending out these messages to the universe for the last 50 years with these billions of planets out there. We've never gotten a response. Why is that? And they come up with the following. All planets that produce civilization in any way, shape, or form, that civilization kills the planet. And we're just going through the same process. Um, and because that kind of cosmic time, you know, we're in the wink of an eye, uh, that it's possible that it's it, that, that once you have a civilized population of our size on the planet, the very size of that of that population, and the impossibility of controlling it all, um, makes the destruction of the planet almost inevitable. I find that difficult to accept that conclusion, but I want to consider it. Yeah, I want to say stuff and nonsense. Although I'm sure your son is infinitely better informed than I am on these questions. Well, but he doesn't necessarily agree with that. There are people in in this conservancy that essentially say uh, we shouldn't even try because it's a, you know the, it, the game's over. Um, and um, and I just can't agree with that. Nor can he. So I think let me ask you a different kind of question. Part of me thinks there will be a techno fix. Part of me thinks that human uh, engineering and ingenuity are such that we will figure this out. We'll find a way to reduce carbon, to uh, blow it away, to neutralize it, to zap it with something, to carbon capture, you know, whatever it is. But that but it's called geoengineering. There's billions and billions of dollars being spent on that right now. We've we've walked ourselves into a real corner here, but um, but there's a very good chance that we will the technology rather than government will lead us out of this abyss. You know, both of you were very Jeffersonian when I presented this question by being extremely humble and, you know, saying historians are no better at uh, predicting the future than, 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 than other citizens. But, you know, there's that old saying about history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mark Twain, yeah. And the, yeah. the, the two of you are, are, are eminent historians. And uh, so I, I take your predictions um, pretty seriously and your opinions as well. I, I from my end, it's, it's like uh, the, uh, the human condition right now, uh, we are not equipped to understand the effects of the speed. One of you talked about the speed of change. Um, it's technology is moving it's moving us so fast that I think uh, human human beings have a very difficult time adjusting to that. I mean, it, in our lifetimes, it, the internet, um, the speed of communication. On the other hand, I, you know, that might be something that ends up saving us. Yeah, okay. Clay suggesting that, and uh, and he's, it, it's dangerous because we don't know what happens when you start screwing with the atmosphere, but the, it's a possibility. It's a very, and the, the, the reason I back away from emphasizing it is that the people making that case now tend to be people who say we don't have to do anything because of that. There's, Eat, drink, and be merry, right? Right, right. And um, I don't think that's true. And, um, but, um, all right, I'll shut up. I do think that, I found this an excellent conversation, invigorating, and as it always is on the Jefferson Hour. And I want to thank uh, 
David and, and uh, Clay for letting me uh, sound sound out and uh, uh, keep me on your keep me on your uh, your list and I'd love to show up. Oh, it's so good to talk with you, Joe, and, and you uh, you bring out uh, the best in Clay and 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 help our listeners sort of understand where we're at. But you know, it, it is we're right on the cusp of it being December, of course the holidays and the one of the few holidays that Jefferson approved of New Year's. Um, and we may not talk to you again before the end of the year. Do you have any thoughts on the upcoming year? Um, I'm moving from uh, Massachusetts permanently up to Vermont. And my thoughts are, how the hell am I going to take all my books with me? That's, <laughs> that's, you know, I know a guy. Let me give you will, my home address, we'll, we'll Joe. We'll take you in. We'll take any book you want to get rid of. <laughs> and you're talking to one of them now. <laughs> I can be at your house by this time tomorrow, Joe, with a U-Haul if you really want. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect to get such personal responses. I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm being personally honest with you and the listeners. And, uh, uh, um, uh, I, I guess the other thing I think is that, um, although I've retired as a teacher, I haven't lost the other half of my identity as a writer. And I'll, if you want to think of me over the next month, every morning between roughly eight o'clock and 12, think of me scribbling away, not, not on a computer, but with, with a pen on a piece of paper. That's an image I can live with. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I so appreciate you being on the show and, and listening to the two of you talk. And, um, you know, it, 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 we can never recommend your books to our listeners enough. Um, if there was one book that you of yours that you had written, Joe, that you would recommend listeners to, to read as a first Ellis read, what would it be? Probably Founding Brothers. That sold a lot of copies, and a lot of people think that it's a good storytelling book. Um, there are other people who think that my best book, and I'd be interested in Clay's reaction to this. Uh, they think my best book is one of the first things I ever did. It's called Passionate Sage. It's a book about atoms. And um, when I, they just came out with a, Norton just came out with a new edition of it for some reason. And um, and uh, I, I took a look at it. And when I did, you know what I said? I said, how did I do that? <laughs> I don't know how I did that. And um and uh, we've, this is the Jefferson Hour, and Adam should not be allowed to intrude. But I think, oh, yes. but I think Jefferson oh, yes. would welcome them, welcome them aboard because of their correspondence in the twilight years of their lives. Uh, and if you're looking for a temperament that's fundamentally different from Jefferson's, uh, which is nevertheless the two, the American Revolution is a complicated thing that, that no one person can stand for it. Maybe Washington, but that. I think that when when Jefferson and Adams are in their dialogue of 158 letters at the end of their lives, what you see is the two sides of the American Revolution interacting, and the dialogue between those two sides is the revolution. Um, the answer isn't isn't the answer isn't is a question, um, and um, and um, and Adams Adams should come up in the Jefferson Hour periodically as. Not a hostile presence, but a friendly presence that draws out um, some of the issues in Jefferson's own thinking in a way that uh, that I think exposes the greatness of both men. 
Well, I think the Passionate Sage is maybe my favorite of your books. Yeah. It's uh, it, it, because here's what I love about your writing. Well, I love many things about your writing, but you enjoy it, and and your joy comes through the sentences, comes through the page, and you find Adams amusing, and you find Jefferson bewilderingly amusing, and those things are really important. I think you're a little unfair to Mr. Jefferson in that book. I also very much like His Excellency, your study of the great one, George Washington. Revolutionary Summer really taught me more than the others of your books, because I didn't really know the logistics of that extraordinary moment in the history of the revolution. Then, of course, one has to point to American Sphinx, and American Sphinx, the, your book about Jefferson, I think uh, is a revolutionary book. It's a pivotal book. I think that in the long run, people will say that that book p laid the foundation for a reassessment of Jefferson along rigorous but generous lines. And I think since then, there's been some kind of nasty anti-Jefferson writing that, ha that won't hold up, but I think your book points the way to a new synthesis about Jefferson. But look, those I've only mentioned, you know, what, three of your 450 books. Hey, so, listen, I appreciate it. I fully expect my royalty checks to start increasing largely because of this this broadcast. And I promise I, to give each of you a percentage. Yeah, thanks to our friend uh, Joseph Ellis. I'll make one last prediction as we, as we go into the holidays. I think that the three of us, the youngest of us is in his 60s, um, will live to see the end of the um, internal combustion engine, and we will think of gasoline-powered cars the way we now think of Betamax. You've been listening to a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We'll see you next week for another important issue of our program, the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson.